70s versus the 80s. This is Wolfman Mike on the mic. And if you ever rode in the back of your parents' station wagon, facing the wrong way with eight other middle schoolers, as you're going to the triple feature drive-in movie, as your parents blast Yacht Rock, which hasn't even been termed the phrase Yacht Rock yet, then this is the podcast for you. So let's get right into today's episode. We're going to be talking Jaws, of course. Uh, Also going to be talking a little bit about Orca. Is it the best knockoff movie ever? Then we're going to go talk some dangerous lawn darts versus cornhole. And then finally, got a new segment we call Hot Yacht Rock or Yuck Not Rock. So let's get right into it. And as always, I'm joined by Brian, Bry Guy. Did I ask for fries on the side guy? So let's get into it. So it's it's summer, Mike. Um what what would you say to maybe taking the 70s versus 80s podcast kind of on a beach vacation? Yeah, that sounds like, a, with our subject matter today, that sounds like a good idea, yeah. Well, what is our subject matter today? Let the let our, let our wonderful fans know what we're going to talk about today on the 70s versus the 80s podcast. Okay, I'm calling it Jaws versus uh, Orca. We're starting out with today. It's just, you know, Jaws is a 1975 movie. It's a it's a movie about July 4th. We just kind of went through, um, you know, it's going to be 50 years old here in a couple years. And, you know, Orca's an unknown movie from 1977, and you might call it a knockoff, and I would call it a knockoff. And so today we're just going to kind of talk about uh, Jaws, the influence it's had on our society, and then how successful the sequels were compared to uh, some of the knockoffs, so... Uh, so, Brian, I was going to start you out with, what's your first, when do you think, how old were you when you first saw Jaws? What's your first uh, thoughts about it? Right. So, um, and we've talked about this before on, on the podcast. A lot of times, a lot of these movies, um, especially from the 70s, we first would have saw on, on network TV, 
And so sometimes it's an edited version. Obviously, there'd be commercials. So you don't, you get that kind of chops up the flow of watching it. So it was probably sometime, you know, in the, in the summer, maybe it was the, you know, ABC movie of the night and would have seen Jaws. And it's, it, it brings you in with the, the, the kind of the ominous theme, right? That, you know, it's very simple, but it, it, it's it's so effective as far as setting the tone of we've talked also on previous podcasts about building drama and the Jaws theme uh, is just the, the simplest, but maybe the best version, you know, way of doing that. Yeah, the A, E flat, E sharp or whatever it is by John <laughs> yeah. Williams score. And now, like you, like I've heard people say, he makes you see the. You don't see the shark. He makes you see it. Just hearing those notes, you see the shark in your mind, even though you're not seeing it on the screen. Um, and you're saying you probably saw it in the ABC movie. I think that makes sense because I think they played it in '79 on the ABC movie of the week, and it it got like a 52 share when the the Super Bowl typically gets around a 31 percent share. <laughs> so yeah, it's it was amazing. It's like probably then the first time it was shown on network TV and. Um, it really captured kind of the imagination of the nation, for lack of a better term, there in the in the mid seventies. It was huge into the pop pop culture, and it's still going today. I just uh, I just recently they re released it um, in three D form, so I saw the the night you know not to be confused with Jaws three D, which is the third sequel. But they put the the nineteen seventy five Jaws came back into theaters in three D, and I think it was like eight bucks or something. I was I took my daughter, and um, they say you know when they always say don't go to a movie that wasn't shot in three D if they put it in the three D. Um, this was the best three D movie I've ever seen. You were just, I had my hands over my lap trying to keep the water from spilling into my lap the whole movie. <laughs> Because of that, and, and that was because Spielberg put that camera in the glass box, and they put it right on the, you know, the the water line, and and uh, it, it's it works great in 3D. It works great when you watch it on your big screen at home, and uh, yeah, I, I and I, I agree with Quentin Tarantino. I don't know what he he says. It's the best. He goes, it might not be the best film ever, but he says it's the best movie ever. I'm not sure what that definition means, but I, I tend to agree with that. So <laughs> whatever that means. Well, we um, recently, um, and you can go back and listen to it, we did the uh, uh, in-depth review of The Shining. Um, and when you get these big-time directors, right, they're big-time directors for a reason. They don't, they're not just born that way. They don't have good, good grades um, in the director scout camp and get picked up. So they're great directors for a reason. And what Spielberg did with Jaws... And like you said, how easily it translated into 3D, how well it was shot, and what Tarantino said. You know, this is like his calling card. Spielberg's made a lot of great films, but the the when you think of the reason why Spielberg is Spielberg, it would start with Jaws. I agree. And then it's a and you know we we've all heard the stories of the the shark uh, didn't work in salt water and it was it was a disaster. And this movie was just like a you know just a disaster. I, Spielberg wasn't even their first pick as director. The shark kept mal- malfunctioning. It just shows you how how great greatness can just come out of a disaster. And I I, I think it's got to be the best directing job ever, just because of how great the final product was, considered to how horrible the process was in the making of it. Yeah, and that's that goes to the the director's eye 
for what the final product is going to look like um, even before it's done. It's kind of like um, Spielberg's doing the film version of what Michelangelo does or um, a great sculptor does when he sees a block of granite and we all just see a block of granite, but he can see or he or she can see, you know, what the sculpture is going to look like at the end. Yeah. And I always try to figure out what this appeal to this movie, you know, why I'm so appealed to this movie. And I think it's the final hour. We get these three men on a boat and, you know, I, we've talked about Quentin Tarantino already. I, I mean, we know about Quentin Tarantino dialogue, but the dialogue in this movie and, you know, it's, for the most part, it's a, it was a PG, I think it was PG when it came out, or PG, because they, all they had was R and PG. I think yeah, they didn't have the PG-13 was added in the, like, in the yeah, 80s. Yeah, so this was, would have been R because of the violence, but the, the language is, for the most part, PG. And um, the dialogue just slays me. You get these three men for the last hour, and, you know, when Brody's wife goes running off, when Quint's mate, you know, he's like, do you got your, rub- I see you got your rubbers on. He makes that joke and stuff. And he's, he's like, don't worry, Mrs. Brody, we'll have him home soon. She goes running off. That's the last time there's a woman in the movie. And then we go another whole another hour with just these three guys on the boat. And, um, it's just, I think they're the, they are the three epitomes of the, of the seventies male. We got the, uh, you know, Brody, we all identify with him. He's the blue collar. He's the fish out of water, literally, because he's a he's a big city New York cop, and he's on this tiny little suburban island where everybody kind of knows each other. And then we got um, Hooper, who's, uh, you know, kind of that 1970s marine biologist. He's going to save the world. He's going to change everything. He's going to – he's got all these big ideas. And then we got Quint, who's <laughs> – Who's I, I want to say he's a World War II vet, but he's as we get that speech we learned he's like a World War II vet on steroids. I mean he's got more baggage than anybody, and I just love it. I, the three men who diabetically oppose each other, and the the two are arguing and kind of each trying to get Brody on their side, and he's kind of in the middle of it. And it's just the dialogue just cracks, and I just the editing and dialogue just I love it. And that's kind of what I feel is missing from more recent attempts at blockbusters is it seems that they are great with action and setting these maybe these outlandish schemes and settings and you know conflicts to resolve but the we've kind of lost the dialogue and maybe that's because when you have in your arsenal you know great cgi and uh budgets for huge huge sets and explosions and stuff like that you don't have to put as much time into into writing a, a, the the actual screenplay to have to have the great dialogue. I, that's one of the things I feel that draws why it stands up today is you get those like you said that 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 that, that three person kind of tug of war towards the end, um, which is helping set the drama as much as you know actually seeing sharks or anything like that. Jaws made today, and I know we like to talk about what if it was made today. Jaws made today would be so much about how they can. Th- um, CGI this shark and and everything, whereas then it's it's more of this is the drama above the water while the shark is lurking underneath, um, not out of mind but out of camera. Yeah, and I, I think we have an example. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Meg, and they're coming out with Meg Two here. Um, you know, great CGI special effects, and then like you said, the dialogue we get the Marvel effect where we just get people wisecracking at the screen. That's the dialogue. You know, somebody tells a joke that there's no way they would ever thought a joke that clever. At that right. Situation. Right. And it's, yeah. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Was, yeah. That's exactly it. It's, it's, 
a set up a punchline, you know, five minutes of outlandish, impossible action, and then a set up a punchline and r- yeah. rinse, rinse, <laughs> re, uh, rinse, lather, re, or rinse, lather, rinse, repeat. Yeah, yeah. So and then, uh, so I just had a couple questions. The USS Indianapolis speech. Uh, where do you think that ranks in speeches or pieces of dialogue in movie history? So if you would be asking me, like, what's the best speech or whatever in movie history, you almost think of um, of Patton, okay. which I think came out in 70. So that's kind of right at the beginning of, of what we're looking at. Um, but this is probably on the Mount Rushmore of them, right? Oh, uh, yeah. I, I, and I think it's my favorite, just the delivery uh, – the whole story about how Robert Shaw, why was I going to call him Robert Stack? Uh, you know, he came in drunk, did the first take completely drunk, and then he begged that he could do it. It was almost unusable, and then he begged that he could come back the next day and did it sober, and then they they intercut the two. Sometimes you can see his eyes kind of glossy. And uh, <laughs> so, and it's not because it was Kubrick directing it and he was doing the 150th take. It was because he was drunk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we've had that's there's lore of people that are show up drunk or are high on an acid trip. There's the Green Bay Packer from the first Super Bowl, I think, who was hung over and had to get because th- he didn't think he was going to play, and he got thrust into a an, into a playing role and ended up being like a star of the first Super Bowl. And then there's the legend of Doc Ellis being high on LSD or tripping on LSD and throwing a no hitter in, in Major League Baseball. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Robert Shaw here, I mean, uh, he would die three years after this movie at the age of 51 um, with 10 kids with, I, I can't remember how many different wives, but uh, he's just, just uh, hard. I mean, he looked, uh, he looks like he's in his late fifties in this yeah. movie, which works perfect for the role. But yeah. <laughs> And that, that wasn't makeup. He just lived hard. Yeah. Yeah. And if you, and yeah. iconic I, shot where uh where when they have the first encounter with the shark and they they kind of come out on the losing end and then he's just on the bow the bow of the ship with the the sunset behind him and he just kind of got like a weird smile like a here we go back to the Jack Nicholson Stanley Kubrick smile kind of and it's just <laughs> one of my favorite shots in movie history right there. I just love that. Yeah. Last time I rewatched it, I think I only was able to watch a, a section of it. You know, you get to a point in your life where you're busy or you don't really have the time to sit down and devote two straight hours to a movie. But it's what struck out to me is thinking about we'll be doing this for the 70s versus 80s podcast is how 70s those beach scenes are with the way the people are dressed where you, compared to like if you go to the beach today. Yeah, no one was really dressing for the sex appeal back then, and <laughs> no, no, it was it was it was function over form. And now we seem to be, you know, it's more about how you look. Most of the stuff people wear to the beach, you're not going to go want to go in the water, and you're just there to be seen. <laughs> yeah, and then some of the '70s, like when Quint uh, squishes the steel can. I don't know if people today get what a big deal that was. Like, <laughs> and then uh, Hooper does the styrofoam cup right back at him, and. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I mean, think we in have the 70- those anymore. Yeah, in the seventies, those steel cans you could, you know, probably use them as a jack stand for your vehicle. Yeah, yeah. They were they were <laughs> tough. You know, we usually talk about can you remake this now? Can you make it into a ten part Netflix series? Um, I, no, is the quick answer. I think they're trying to remake a. A Quint, I think there's a, a book of Quint story coming out where there's, you know, maybe about the U.S. Indianapolis is kind of his, his pre-story. Yeah, yeah, you could do, you could almost take the, the Star Wars approach and do prequels. 
like leading up to it, some of these some some of these character arcs of what they were doing beforehand, you'd obviously then be using new actors. Um, but the story itself, I'm going to go back to what Tarantino said, where it's just it's a fantastic movie. It's it's has its drama, has its entertaining. It's, it's well written. It's well shot. It's got a memorable score. You don't want to you don't want to ruin it by trying to do something. Um, I want to talk about you know Mel Brooks in an upcoming episode. Um, maybe even just do some you know 70s Mel Brooks versus 80 Mel Brooks. But recently Mel Brooks did um, is like a six part series of History of the World Part Two. You know, he had a History of the World Part One movie, and most of the online comments I've seen are just like, "This is—it's terrible. He shouldn't have done it. He's messing with the classic." And I truly feel that if if they were to redo Jaws, even if it was Spielberg doing it in a six-part thing, that the most most of the response would be, um, "You're messing with the classic. It's a money grab," um, and people wouldn't actually watch it. I watched the the Mel Brooks History of the World Part to the six episodes. And it's one of those things where I think people now are panning it. And in 30 years, what you'll do is you'll just remember just the funny parts of it because um, any Mel Brooks movie has its its spots that aren't as funny as other spots. And you'll only remember those funny, funny things when you're looking back at it. And so 20 or 30 years from now, people that watched it now will be like how great it is compared to what's being done you know, then. Um, kind of like we've talked about this about Saturday Night Live multiple times where Everyone thinks the older parts of Saturday Night Live were better because they only remember the good skits. They don't remember the bad skits. And yeah. so it, nothing, it always pales in comparison, today's version versus the, the last one. And I feel that we get that with, with Jaws. Even Spielberg did a good job with it, with some kind of six-episode six streaming thing of, of Jaws, that it would be panned and, and just fr- frankly shit upon because it, you're tampering with the classic. Yeah, and so that kind of brings us into the next section here. You, we looked and we've seen that you know Jaws two was below average, and then Jaws three D, and then Jaws Revenge were just god awful because they you know they tried to show the first part of the first movie we didn't see the shark until like an hour into it, and that's kind of what made the tension. And then so in the the second third movies you had to show them right away because we had already we already know there's a big shark under there. You know you can't really hide them again. So that's what I was going to try to bring up. I was talking and talking about TV movies, a movie that I saw that I, I think a movie that really took off once it went to the, the movie of the week, it was probably ABC or whatever, was a 1977 movie. So here it is made two years later after Jaws. It was called Orca, the Killer Whale. Um, And now you said you had never seen this, right, Brian? I've never seen it. I looked into it a little bit. I didn't watch it. Um, but... The thing that jumped out to me is in doing a little bit of research about it is that there was a like a little snippet saying that it is one of the better animal attack movies of the era, which is kind of like being very, very specific to be one of the best of something. It's like <laughs> we're one of the top five best animal attack movies of 1977. It's like, well, yeah, because they only made five. Well, after Jaws, they did come out. They had the Grizzly. We had Piranha, mm-hmm. um, Alligator, which was the what were they? They were flushing something down the the New York sewer systems, like not steroids, but growth hormone <laughs> or something. And the, somebody flushed their alligator yeah. down there, and it started consuming that. Yeah, yeah, it was um, like outside Barry Bonds' house. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
So um, what I remember about Orca is it was Bo Derek's first movie. It had a uh, Richard Harris was the star of it. He he was in a lot of movies, and then it had Will Sampson, who was Chief from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So it, it had some legitimate actors in it. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes just tanks it. They give a nineteen percent, which is just horrible. IMDb gives it a five point seven out of ten, which I kind of think is where it belongs. Um, I went back and watched a bunch of the key scenes. I couldn't watch the whole thing because it's. It is a very dark movie. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. we, we have a, a female whale uh, miscarrying here. It was kind of what starts off the uh, the revenge part of the male orca, um, and it just it, it's it's a pretty dark movie. Uh, what it has over Jaws is it's it's showing actual orcas. I mean, it's there's yeah no they did robots, have some no footage in this yeah. of two orcas. I heard that they were named Yaka and Nepo. Yeah. Um. One of the things, too, that I saw in the reviews is there are some people that do love this movie, even though it's got that terrible Rotten Tomatoes thing. Um, but almost all of them are very much that the um, they have, they're sympathetic and sad to the orca, and they're cheering for the orca, kind of the opposite of, of Jaws, where everyone's afraid of the great white. Um, and that's the villain, where a lot of people are sympathetic to the, to the, to the orca in this movie. Well, the shark has black doll eyes. He's he's lifeless eyes. Um, yeah, the the shark is, you know, I, we're gonna cover Halloween coming up here. He's just that, you know, he's the he's just the has no emotion, just moves forward and destroys everything. And then an orca, we yeah, you are sympathetic to the to the whale, the orca, you know, because he's his his family's destroyed, and you can see his motivation, and he has the brain to think about it. Um, there's some parts of the movie like where he, I don't know how the the whale knows that uh, ripping up the gas line is going to de- burn down the whole city, but yeah, yeah. right. Well, that's <laughs> why they're like um, recently. Well, I'm I'll touch on this in a second, I, but um, the, the one other thing I noticed is Dino De Laurentiis is the producer of this movie, and his granddaughter is Gia De Laurentiis, who's a big star on the Food Network. So that's oh, wow. like, I'm thinking of that as I'm researching. It's like, oh, that, that, that name sounds familiar. And I looked it up. Wow. Um, recently, there's been orcas attacking boats, um, you know, on the coast of Europe and everything. And it's not because they heard we were going to be reviewing this movie. Um, some <laughs> marine researchers are thinking they're just being playful and they're bumping into the boats and stuff like that. But they're actually hitting them hard enough to cause damage or even sink them. Yeah. And so between orcas sinking our boats and the, the possibility, right, of a, of a Jaws attack at the beach, I'm thinking, why would we want to take the 70s versus the 80s podcast on a beach vacation? Maybe we should just hang out in our backyard. Huh, but what would we do when we're there, Brian? Well, funny you should ask, because the 1970s is famous for having lawn darts. And lawn, lawn darts. darts appear that they would be fun, right? It's basically a version of horseshoes, which is basically yeah. a version. Well, I'm gonna. I got more about horseshoes um, later, but it's a game called coins or something like that. It was just basically throwing discus-like things towards a, a, a stake, trying to get the closest. Basically, soldiers being bored and and wasting time. Um, Darts kind of came out, or uh, I, the lawn darts, and then we had, when I was growing up, we had, they were called jarts. And um, 
my parents would hide them in the rafters of our garage <laughs> so his kids couldn't get them. But of course, that's just you know, it, it's only that's only going to prevent you from getting them until you're tall enough to be able to figure out how to climb into the rafters. And they tried to ban them earlier than when they actually did get banned. And so what happened is they instead of selling them in the toy department, the sporting goods stores and stuff like that had to sell them as like as a sporting good and for adults only. Um, but did you ever play lawn darts or charts? Oh yeah, yeah, barefoot and everything. <laughs> and they were heavy. Yes, it's like we actually I think we pretended to use them as weapons when we were playing, um, like w- pretend war games as young kids. We'd get we'd get them out, and then that, those those were like weapons. But between seventy eight and eighty seven, so prime seventies versus eighties podcast time. Uh, there were over 6,700 ER visits for lawn dart injuries, and three-fourths of them were children. So they ended up being banned in 1988. And it was a dad of a, of a, a girl who got killed who kind of spearheaded that move to get him. Because there were deaths. There were deaths. Yes. So if people can't picture these, they were very uh, – they had like, what, a three-inch point on them that was heavy, so – you didn't throw them like a dart, like you're throwing dart in a. No, in a you pump. basically, it had a, a the heavy metal point, and it was heavy. It was probably like four pounds, mm-hmm. roughly, or something like that. And then it had a plastic fin, so it looked like a space age, um, like fighter jet. And then and it, like the uh, fins the, on a regular dart, you know the little. Yeah, feathers. and so with the and you'd hold on to it, and you'd basically, yeah, you'd almost throw it underhand, like you're pitching a horseshoe, and it'd go up, and it's supposed to land in a ring, and you'd get, I think, three points if you landed in the ring, and you'd get a point if you were within a dart length of that circle. But they were heavy and pointed, and so they're supposed to then stick in the ground, right? So they don't go bouncing, and then that way, you know, like for scoring, it's not like if you're tossing a bean bag or anything like or not a bean bag but other stuff that could 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 move or roll um but yeah it ended up some kids died being being hit by these and yeah they had those little hula hoops that you're supposed to throw it in i don't think we ever used those everybody just kind of threw them back and forth right back and, and forth just to throw them to just to see how they like how high you could throw them and how deep you could stick them into the ground yeah that's what i remember doing as a kid Yep, and then, like I said, if you had bare feet, and were, the the thing is, you kind of threw them underhand. So if you threw them straight up, then there was trouble because they were coming back down in a hurry. But yeah, <laughs> everyone was scattered to the four corners of the of the yard. Um, okay, well, let's think of because people died with with uh, with lawn darts. So let's think of something that may be a little more more safe. So uh, I've got three more games that we could think talk about. We got bocce ball. We got horseshoes, and we have cornhole. Now, bocce ball um, and horseshoes kind of have a somewhat similar backstory. Um, bocce is considered the third most popular sport in the world after soccer, or the our European friends call it football, and golf. Hmm. And I was recently there's been a, I've seen an influx, or a, you know there's been a pickup in bocce leagues. I think where I live there's two different um, locations that have built-in permanent bocce courts, like outdoors, and there's there's leagues. And I know that um, Halftime Rec in St. Paul, a bar has bocce um, courts in their basement. 
Um, but that's like a, a full regulation court. Most people play in the backyard and you throw the little target ball, the palata or whatever it's called. And then you just, you know, it just basically you kind of meander around the yard holding a beer in one hand and a bocce ball in the other. Yeah, you get you need the beer for the counterweight because the bocce yes. is pretty heavy. It's probably like six pounds, yeah, five six pounds. Yeah. Well, and the, you know, t- going back to the, um, I have a the bocce story for me. That one of the two times that I illegally drank, like I drank underage drink in a bar was at halftime rec when we were in the basement playing bocce, and um, I was with a bunch of people too, you know, a year or two older than me, and they're all of age. So then I was able to illegally drink. <laughs> so bocce is good for uh, arguing because you have to measure how close and a ball to, off to the left is considered to a ball to the right and or one's at a 40 degree angle and you you got to you almost got to get out the uh the old antenna and stretch it out right it, yep um i had a measuring device that was like basically a little it looked like a radio tower antenna thing, you know, it was fit, mm-hmm. or, or like the Eiffel Tower and you'd set that over the target ball and then it had a string and you could then use the string to measure Oh wow! Because um, that was better than the tape measure. Because with the tape measure, you're always like, "Well, you're you know you're cheating it, you're doing whatever." So this yeah. is like it's that over the ball, and you or you bump the target ball a little bit closer to yours so that your measurement comes out. Um, bocce has been previously, or as it's currently being played, has been tracked back as far as um, like 260 BC. So it's really old. Um, another old game, yeah, is uh, horseshoes, which came around in the second century um and both these are a game called quoits which is basically a discus type shape thing that you would throw it at land closest to a target right so this is all this stuff is kind of similar like right? we had the 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 hoop for lawn darts not your foot but the hoop for lawn darts um bocce's you got the you throw it a target ball and then everyone tries to get close to this and now horseshoes there's a stake and you throw horseshoes um but the first horseshoe world championship wasn't held until 1910 in Bronson, Kansas. So horseshoes was kind of just being played, but it wasn't kind of organized into the sport we know it today in 1910. Now, there's a gentleman named Alan Francis, who I will argue, he's from Defiance, Ohio, is, if you're gonna talk about people being the greatest of all time because they win championships, like Tom Brady's won seven championships, he's the greatest of all time, Um, this guy, is not only the greatest all-time in horseshoes, but I would argue that he's the greatest all-time in any sport. He has won. I'm going to let you guess. How many times has Alan Francis won the world championships? And you can't win it until you're after 18 because there's juniors. So it's once a year. Okay. Once a year. He can't win it until you're 18. How many times has Alan Francis won the world championship of horseshoes? <sighs> well, since you're asking, it's got to be a crazy number. I'll go 42. I know. I don't know. That is crazy. Um, you're off, but you're only off by 16. He's won it 26 times. Wow. He won it in 89, 93, 95 through 99, 2001, 2003 through 2010, 2012 through 2019, and in 21 and in 22. And so it hasn't been held yet this year, so we'll see if he can add it wow. for the 27. He also won the junior championships before he turned 18 four different times. Wow. So this guy can play horseshoes. <laughs> He's putting up numbers bigger than Joey Chestnut, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, How many times has Joey Chestnut won the hot dog thing? Is it is he gotten to double digits yet, or, or is he closing I in on it? Is it 16? Okay, and then he's definitely in the double yeah. digits. So he's got 10 more years to go. Plus, Alan Francis, he could be adding on again this year. 
because <laughs> I don't know what the what the window is on a horseshoe throwing career because that was something your uncles would be playing. <laughs> yeah. And your uncles seemed like they were a hundred years old. <laughs> yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah, just my, my uncles uh, playing horseshoes and bocce. Just a good excuse to drink and argue. I really, I it, think, it is what pretty much is. Are. It was, you know, what you know, you got football that you watch in the winter when you drink and argue inside, and then horseshoes and bocce ball allow you to drink and argue outside, take advantage of the of the good weather. And jarts can make you lose a couple toes. Right. Like so that leaves cornhole. Now cornhole, uh, we don't we don't shy away from the controversy here at the '70s versus the '80s podcast, and so. There is a controversy. It's raging throughout. You've probably heard it. We're going to try to get to the bottom of it here today on the 70s versus 80s podcast is who invented cornhole? Some people, there's a camp, uh, mostly our European friends, uh, but they say that it was invented in 14th century Germany uh, by a gentleman named Matthias Cooperman. So he was watching kids toss rocks into a ground nearby groundhog's hole, and he thought, well, if it was safer, if he'd make up a bag of corn, because corn was then not necessarily as much of a, a food grain as it was for weights and other things. And he was a cabinet maker, so he'd be able to make a board, and then he'd cut a hole into it. So that's the our German friends, or our European friends' argument. Um Others, so there's a group that say that it's the Blackhawk Indian tribe in, in Illinois invented it. And Illinois is part of kind of the corn belt of Illinois and Iowa and parts of Minnesota. So that checks out. That That's certainly a possibility. And they would have had time to you know, play games. Then um, my favorite is uh, people from Kentucky are really, really insisting that it was invented by a farmer, a Kentucky farmer. His name was Jebediah McGillicuddy, and he just invented it with materials that he had around his farm. And to me, while his name is fantastically poetic. Um, I'm going to think that that's just more Kentucky urban legend. I'm going to try to leave that one off. And then I heard there was a fourth camp is mainly um, M- the MTV MTV generation um, has someone who they think invented it. And I believe I'm going to let you uh, touch on who that is. Yeah, Brian. I mean, let's go with the name Cornhole. I think it had to be invented by the namesake, the great Cornholio. I am the great Cornholio. <laughs> you have awakened my bunghole, and now you must pay. <laughs> the streets will flow with the blood of the non-believers. <laughs> um, I mean, how could it not be? <laughs> yeah, it has to be the great Cornholio. Because does anyone really know how old the great Cornholio is? He could have been in 13th century Germany and yeah. invented it, right? Because uh, I've never seen uh, the Cornholio's driver's license to see how old it truly is. Yeah. And he could have invented TP for <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you could put that in as well. Yeah. I need TP for my bunghole. <laughs> but cornhole is one of those, it's another one of these games that can be played by people of all ages. Um, my uh, late uncle had wanted us to do a family reunion on my dad's side because. With them all being military, they all of them had spent time in the military. So my dad's brothers had scattered throughout the country. We have one in Washington State and one in Texas and one in Tennessee. So you didn't see your cousins a lot. So you pushed on a family reunion. So every year at the family reunion, they have a big cornhole game. And then it's 
a random drawing for partners to help you get to to meet people. And so, but, but that it's being of all ages is, and we ran out of time, but the last year, last reunions uh, championship game would have been me at age like 51 and my 46 year old cousin, who was my partner against my 80 year old dad and my 64, I think year old cousin would have been in the championship game. And so that's like, it's not just the young kids that are going to dominate it. Like if we were out there playing baseball or softball or basketball or any of these ones. So that's why these are great backyard games is because it can be played by people of all ages. Um, It can be competitive because anytime you get a group of like what, 10 or 12 friends together, there's four people that don't want to play anything and just socialize. There's going to be four or five who will play it just because they want to drink. And then there's going to be the two or three that are ultra competitive and want to win. And so Mm -hmm. Games like cornhole, horseshoes, um, bocce fit for all all of those groups. Um, yeah. Lawn darts, I'd be worried about the competitive group. <laughs> <laughs> I was just, what I like about cornhole is, uh, you know, I like the, all the artistry of the people that make their own boards. Who, you know, they'll have, for the Fourth of July, they'll have the stars. And mm-hmm. or the stars versus the stripes, you know. Yep. And they, and they, I don't know. I couldn't make one of those boards. I couldn't put that much lacquer on it. I don't know how many times you have to lacquer those things. The, that's the problem. We bought one. So my daughter's a University of Minnesota graduate, and so for Christmas one time for a family gift, we bought. It's a University of Minnesota, so it's got you know the go for the block M and a fun logo on the cornhole boards, um, and then we bought bags which are. There's a maroon team and a gold team, and then there's two different eras of the golden gopher logo, the goldie, like an old-style goldie and a, a more modern goldie. And the first time we played it, so we, we, you know, a brand new board and everything, and you'd hit with the bags on the board, and they would just slide off because it's so slick. And so <laughs> me being a impatient, you know, man, I go and I sand it, and that's helped. Ooh. But you're actually supposed to like, there's there's some kind of substance resin in those bags that with time will get on there and kind of get it sticky because you want to have a certain amount of slide like you want to be able to if you lift the board at a certain angle it's like the 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 bag should be able to slide off and then when you tilt it back to the right angle then it's the right amount of where it's a little bit of slide but not a lot and then they show it on tv right so all these other games there's not necessarily a bo- professional bocce ball i don't really see horseshoes on tv i don't know if they even televise this this championship probably because everyone knows that alan francis is going to win um but on espn the first time they televised cornhole on espn was in 2017 so it's even before the pandemic because i know that during the pandemic all of a sudden there's like cornhole on yeah. espn like half the time um so they cha- the championship of bags called Cobbs which okay cornhole cobs uh, we love the we love the pun um had a larger viewing network than major league baseball which was on two networks the WNBA all-star game was on and the final stage of the tour de france and the championship of bags cornhole tournament got a larger viewing audience than those four sporting events <laughs> so the people love it i guess you you know you don't want to just watch it in your backyard you also Maybe it's so that people like our uncles could could drink and argue about it. All right. I guess we're going to have to make a, a 70s versus 80s uh, a set. <laughs> see, see who definitely see who wins out of those two. Oh, you 100% could have a 70s board and an 80s board. Yep. 
All right, we'll get our we'll get our. I'll, get your we'll have to send, and la- Get your lacquer, and we'll get yep. one. We'll have to have our crack staff here at the seventies or the eighties put that together. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm I'm just saying that I to me, and maybe that's because I'm from the great Midwest. Is that standing in someone's backyard, getting eaten by mosquitoes, having a bonfire, having a good drink in your hand, having being surrounded by friends, and playing one of these games is better than getting your leg bit off by a shark or having an orca tip your boat over. That's, that's fair enough. Deep, I think that's a deep take. That's a deep take. <laughs> Just as long as you don't get hit by a, a Midwestern tornado, I think you're safe in the middle of the country there. What if a tornado hit the lawn dart, darts factory? <laughs> There's just lawn darts swirling around in the tornado. Oh, I, think I think we've got, got I think we've got the sequel to the um, Twister movie. Sharknado. It would be Jartnado. <laughs> Jartnado. Jartnado. Yes. Boy, we got to write that now. We got So Brian, to stay with today's uh, theme, we're you know we've been on the we were in the water. Uh, so I was thinking, you know, what do you like being in the water in a yacht? And uh, what do you what kind of music are you supposed to listen to? You, you don't want to listen to the Jaws theme music. That'll just make you that will right. freak you the, the hell out. And you don't want to play anything that's you don't want to play anything that's going to attract orcas to circle your your boat your yacht. Yeah, so you you want to stay again uh, probably away from the Michael Bublé or whatever would do that, but. Uh, <laughs> Kenny G with that, who knows if that would thing would bring whales in, right? So uh, we're thinking what uh, we're go- we're gonna call this uh, hot yacht rock or yuck not rock. So we each p- we each picked out a yacht rock song, and the other one's gonna say either "Ooh, that's hot" or "Not yuck not." So um, <laughs> hence the name. And so Brian, you go first. Uh, what what have you picked out for us today? Wonderfully. Yacht Rocky, you know, some people call it Yacht Rock, some call it adult-oriented, um, smooth rock, whatever, Seven, you know, the mellow 70s and 80s. I picked Southern Cross by Crosby, Stills, and Nash. She was making for the trades on the outside And the downhill run to Papa Ete Eighty feet of a waterline
So one of the reasons I picked this is it kind of starts slow, but it's one of those songs that by the end you'll be singing along. Like if you're with a group of friends, you'll be singing along in the in the car. What a classic sound it's got to it. I'm, I'm going to agree with you, Brian. I say, yeah, this is a hot yacht rock. Uh, very good song. I mean, the, the singing, the composition, I guess it was after he got divorced. He was talking about going and sailing away is what we're going with yep, here. Clearing your mind, getting your mind clear, just taking a long boat journey. Um, the harmon, the harmonies, you know, the we, harmonies. that's a, that's I think is a is a great yacht rock thing when you have um, the vocal harmonies. So this was during. I always get confused. Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. I can't remember which. I think Young came first with the four. I think, first. to be honest, I think it was, and I, I'm kind of a fan, but I'm not a super fan. I think there was Crosby, Stills, and Nash to begin with, and then um, Young was in there for. The stuff with like Four Dead in Ohio, um, Tin Soldiers and Nixon's Coming. I can't remember the name name of the of the song. And then I think Neil kind of branched out. He wanted to have a career and a body of work so that he could later on pull it from Spotify. And so they went back to just being Crosby, Stills and Nash. And we David Crosby died either late last year or earlier this year. Yeah, just recently. As 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 you know, our musical uh, the people we listen to from the seventies, eighties are gonna you know keep passing because. It's just time. Time marches on. All so right. Take so the time to you know get on a boat and take a take a cruise and, and clear your head. All right, Mike. So what do you have for me? So that was a good pick you had there, Brian. This is my song. It's by the world famous Ace. Do you remember Ace, Brian? I don't. Well, they had this one song. You know, when you talk about one-hit wonders, you ever do you ever wonder if the guy who coined the term one-hit wonders um, coined any other terms or not? Uh, all right. I see what you did there. Brian, so so the lyrics are, how long has this been going on? So describe to me what you think that song's about. I think it's about um, someone really didn't like seventh period uh, English class, and they're just like, how long has this been going on? No. <laughs> well, the, you're supposed to get 99% of the people say that song's about like a cheating spot, adultery or cheating. Cause it's like, how long has this been going on? That, you know, that would have been my next guess is that. So that's what 99% at the motel of the six people, out on the interstate saying, how long has this been going on? Yeah. That too. <laughs> so that, how long has this segment been going on? But, um, so <laughs> that's what I always, uh, you know, the first hundred times I heard that song, and then I started digging into it, and it's really not about that. It's about uh, the lead singer, Paul Carrick, who I'm going to talk about in a minute. He, was, he discovered that his bassist, Terry Tex Comer, 
had been secretly working with, they were friends with another group called the Sutherland Brothers. And the Sutherland Brothers were more uh, more accomplished, more popular at the time. So they were kind of opening up for them. And then the Sutherland Brothers decided that they wanted this Terry Tex Corner to be their bassist. And so when the lead singer, Paul Carrick, found out about it, he wrote this song, and the, you know the lyrics are all your friends with their fancy persuasions. You're like, that doesn't really make sense for an adultery song or whatever. No. So it's really about that. And the good news is that the bassist ended up staying with Ace, and then Ace became the bigger group because they made this song about the other group trying to steal their bassist. So they right. they got the last laugh. Yeah, they did. This then that that part right there is making me think twice because Mark Marin's offered for me to be on his podcast, and I was going to jump ship, but now that you mentioned that. I think I'm going to stay here. I think I'm, yeah, I think I'm going to stay here on the '70s versus the '80s podcast. So that was so we're kind of making fun. Ace is a one-hit wonder, but that Paul Carrick, um, he went on to be quite the singer. Do you remember this song? Yes. Did you know that was the? I, I, I guess you can kind of hear it. He kind of has got the same tone as the A singer, he, right? You can sometimes you can when uh, when a vocalist has changed groups or or something or or just a new song, right? And you, 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 there's just something about a vocalist because it's kind of a unique signature to each individual vocalist, at least until the auto tune uh, era, where someone would be like, you'd be like, oh, that sounds like the guy from you know Ace, and um, but I I didn't listen to these enough. This is just kind of the the background music, right, of our 70s and 80s collective. Yeah. Paul Carrick wasn't done there with uh, Ace and Squeeze. He went on to this, and and, and I, to find this sound clip, I had to listen to the song. I, I hate this song. Mike and the Mechanics of the Living Years, he's, does it, this sounds like him a little too. And don't give me- I had to I had to listen to that you know to find that clip I had to listen to that song I just I do not like that song I, I like the vocal performance right and I, I guess I can kind of hear he's the same guy in all three clips right but at what point during the song as you're listening for that clip did you be like how long has this been going on boom boom so yeah I don't have my drum effects I was gonna say I'm trying to Trying to now see if we can steer it to a Phil Collins drum effect bit, but I'm That's sure you'll be able to, to figure do. out a spot to put that oh, in. Oh, wait. <laughs> Brian, that joke deserves a drum roll. I wonder if I have one here. Oh, here's <laughs> one. Has Phil fallen down again? We. <laughs> yeah, we need to get life alert, a life alert sponsorship or a, a, for, for Phil. Every time we play that sound effect, yeah, we, life alert should give us a, a fallen and I can't get up type thing. 
So that's what, uh, so Brian, you never answered us. So how long do you, is that, is that a hot yacht rock or is that a yuck that sucks? No, it's a, it's a hot yacht rock. It's one of those things that makes you listen. And like you said, you have to, sometimes you have to listen to it uh, multiple times to get the true, true meaning. And that's sometimes a mark of a, of a fun one hit wonder song, or even just a, a yacht rock song, right? It's something that's, you can listen to it and there's some that listen to it because it makes you feel like you're grooving or some of it it's like you like the vocal harmonies and sometimes it's it's like you're like there's you're trying to find the hidden message in it yeah and, and i like that one because it's just one of the more yachty yachty rock, rock yacht rock songs it just it couldn't be any other genre <laughs> you just it's just dripping in it so that's the, the 70s and 80s were until the you know hair metal era and the hip-hop era started and after kind of the end of the the big blues rock and and uh, things that that was that was the majority of our 70s and 80s listening was Yacht Rock. How long has this been going on? It's been going on that long because we are out of here, folks. And I just wanted to thank uh, everybody for us at the 70s versus the 80s for all the great support. The numbers have been crazy lately. The $6 million man episode was our biggest ever. And I just like to thank everybody for that. And if you want to reach out to us and give us some ideas about what episodes you want to hear, you can reach out to us at Facebook, Twitter, or I'm going to put a link in the show notes. You just click on it. It's called Speak Pipe and you just speak into it and you might hear your voicemail on the next episode. So thank you so much and happy yacht rocking everybody. Oh, the Kansas, Kansas,